Trust me, I'm like a smart person. Welcome to Trust Me, I'm an Expert, a podcast from The Conversation where experts dig into their research to explain the big questions. Today, we're exploring Australia's weather, climate change, and the future of our big, dry country. First, we talked to Andrew Watkins from the Bureau of Meteorology about the cyclone forecast, which was released today, and the future of extreme weather. By the time you listen to this, the Bureau of Meteorology will have released its tropical cyclone outlook for the upcoming wet season. It sets the scene for how those in the tropical north of Australia should plan for the upcoming cyclone season. And it's no small amount of work to put it together. For every time we run that model, around about 40 million pieces of information, pieces of data go in. That's Dr Andrew Watkins. Manager of Long Range Forecasts here at the Bureau of Meteorology. I spoke to Dr Watkins in the weeks leading up to the release of the Cyclone Outlook. The Bureau was still yet to run their full forecast model, but they already had some indication that we're likely to see a calmer cyclone season this year due to a couple of factors. Look, at the moment, really, one of the big things that drives more or or less tropical cyclones for Australia is whether we're in the El Niño or not. If we're in La Niña, if we're on the other side of the scale, we do typically see a lot more tropical cyclones. If we're in El Niño, we tend to see fewer. Now, at the moment, we're sort of sitting in this neutral, in the, in the middle a little bit, slightly more on that El Niño side. In actual fact, we're at El Niño watch at the moment. Before we go on, you might be thinking, El Niño? La Niña? I hear those words a lot when people talk about weather, but what do they actually mean? Dr Watkins explains. They're part of what we call the El Niño Southern Oscillation. Look, it's a big fancy word, but what it really means is the Pacific Ocean either gets warmer near South America, which is El Niño, or the Pacific Ocean, the tropical Pacific Ocean, gets warmer near Australia, and that's La Niña. You might say, well, why, why does that matter? Why does it matter whether the water is warmer? Well, you can sort of think the warm water is where the clouds form. So if the warm water moves across towards South America and we have El Nino, the clouds and the rain that goes with it heads off towards South America. La Nina is the opposite. The warm water tends to pool around northern Australia. That brings with it more cloudiness, more rain, and that's when we've seen our big historical flood events and so on. So what does that mean for those people in tropical cyclone areas like the coastal areas of Queensland, northern New South Wales and Darwin? So that would tend to suggest that when we run the model eventually, uh, that we will be seeing sort of an average to below average number of tropical cyclones likely, uh, possibly uh, a weaker than normal tropical cyclone season. But having said that, if I had a quick caveat, we've never seen a season without a tropical cyclone affecting Australia. So that doesn't mean, you know, oh well, just take it easy and forget about cleaning up your backyard if you're living up in Darwin or Cairns or somewhere or other. Just remember, you know, one tropical cyclone can ruin your summer and we've never had a, tro- a tropical cyclone season without at least one coming ashore somewhere. You really do need to prepare once we head into the severe weather season in the tropics, but at least you can sleep a little bit easier knowing that the odds of getting hit this year are, are probably going to be less than normal. So that's the good news. But how do you put together a model that can calculate something as big and variable as a whole season of weather? The outlook for tropical cyclones is still one of the few what we call statistical models that we use. 
And so what that means is it looks at the past and looks at how the changes happen in the Pacific Ocean, so whether we have El Niño or La Niña, and does the comparison between what's happened in the past in the Pacific Ocean and how many tropical cyclones we've had, and then uses that information to do a, to do a forecast forward. But what we're trying to move to for most things now, and we have moved for a lot of things, is using those big dynamical models, those big physics-based models. And a lot of data does go into them. Around about, for every time we run that model, around about 40 million pieces of information, or pieces of data go in. And you might say, where? You know, I don't see a person standing on the corner of every street uh, with a thermometer. Well, that's true, but we've got to remember the satellites and so on these days supply a massive amount of information and they're constantly monitoring every day and night. We have other things like floating buoys out in the oceans. We have these really cool gliders that actually glide under the surface of the ocean and travel along at depth because understanding what's happening in the, o in the ocean, the deeper ocean, really gives us a lot of information that's sort of your slow, that's sort of your flywheel, your slow moving thing that will dictate what the climate's gonna look like over the next several months. So we do lots of monitoring and I shouldn't just say we, oh, sorry, I should say we, not just the <laughs> Bureau, not just Australia, we rely on data from all around the world uh, and that comes into us every day via the World Meteorological Organization. In actual fact, a, a little sidebar, but uh, Washington, Moscow and Melbourne are the three hubs for all this data to come in from around the world, so we're, we're pretty lucky to be sitting sitting here in one of the hubs of meteorology in the world. When it boils down to it, there is still a climatologist or a meteorologist or a hydrologist at the end of all that to, to interpret, but still a, a lot of that comes through our, our supercomputing and our modelling capability. A lot of discussion about weather this year has been about the fact Australia is going through a severe drought. When he recently took government, Prime Minister Scott Morrison said that the drought was his highest priority. This isn't just a drought affecting New South Wales as much as it is. It's in Victoria, it's in South Australia, it's in Queensland. And it does require bringing to bear all the resources of government at all levels, getting everybody to work together. So how will this big dry period affect the impact of cyclones in the coming season? Oddly, a cyclone could be good news. When you think about the landscape at the moment, it's very dry across eastern Australia. In actual fact, look, we're still waiting for the September numbers to come in. But uh, you know, we were looking at one of the, the top five driest years so far uh, on record. And the records go back there, at least with rainfall, back to 1900. So considering we don't have an El Nino, that's a pretty big story really in that you know, we're in top five despite not really having a, a huge obvious climate driver that's absolutely thumping us at the moment. But we've also had very high temperatures and in actual fact it's been, the, the year to date has been warmest on record for New South Wales, for Victoria, South Australia, the Murray-Darling Basin. Coming back to what that might mean for tropical cyclones, it means the landscape has very little moisture in it. So if a tropical cyclone does come ashore, of course the, the, the concerns around the coastal crossing with the winds, that's always a, a big worry. Also the storm surge at the coast. But once it comes to shore, often we get the big rain event when it starts, starts to sort of collapse into a tropical low or and that low pressure system starts to move inland and further south. Now if that low was raining on very wet soils, you start to run a big risk of having widespread flooding and so forth. But if tropical cyclones this year come ashore, 
it might actually be a great relief for many people that are in the drought and you're probably less likely to see widespread flooding as a result. If there was flooding it would be shorter term, it would um, you know, very rapidly the, the rain will come in and get absorbed by the soils. So in other words it's going to go down in the soil before it starts running off through the front door of your house basically. You've got more time more time to react and, and respond to the event. If they do come ashore, probably would be good news for a number of people, particularly in parts of New South Wales, Western Queensland, if they came further south into northern Victoria or, or, or South Australia, rather than being you know, the very worrisome widespread flooding events that we've seen you know, in the past. Any rainfall from a cyclone is likely to only be a short-term relief. Dr Watkins says farmers are likely looking at a historic shift in the temperatures on the eastern part of the country. The long-term trend in temperatures, and the temperatures have been going up around a degree in the last century for Australia. But what we've also seen, say since the mid-70s in southwest Western Australia, seen a drying out of the landscape there, sort of 15-20% reduction in mean rainfall particularly over that sort of winter, uh, autumn, winter period, and which is the critical period for agriculture, of course. But over now in the southeast, pretty much since really since the start of the millennium drought, um, certainly the millennium drought ended in, in the rainfall in 2010 and so on. But you know, really that autumn, winter rainfall has never really returned perfectly back to normal. So we have seen a reduction now in southeastern Australia since pretty much the mid-90s in that autumn winter rainfall that's so critical for our winter crops that we have here and also for the pasture to, to recover after our normally dry summers as well. And while we can talk about bigger responses to climate change or the drought, Dr Watkins says there's a more local way we can help those struggling through this particularly severe spell. It is looking dry, unfortunately, and we need to be cognizant of, of the, the stresses that puts on people in particular out there in our rural areas and, and in the bush as well. They need our support, so get out there, go on a holiday, visit, visit inland and regional Australia and so on. But the other thing is when you go on that holiday, also recall that unfortunately the landscape being so dry in those forested areas, the bushfire risk is up this year. So the forests are quite dry at the moment, Take care when you go out. Don't, don't let it put you off going out, of course, but keep an eye on the, on the weather forecasts and warnings that the Bureau issues and your local fire agencies and so on. Just be conscious of what to do if, uh, unfortunately, there is some sort of fire event while you're out. And likewise, you know, make sure you drop into those country towns and, and buy their vanilla slice because uh, they do make good vanilla slices out they there do. in land Australia. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time and, and thanks for all of the advice about the upcoming Outlook. No worries, Wes. It's been a, a real pleasure. Australia has always had a lot of crazy weather, but is it really getting more extreme? To put it all in context, we interviewed Dr. Joelle Gerges from the University of Melbourne. Joelle's book, Sunburnt Country, sums up her research mapping Australia's climate thousands of years into the past. I'm here with Joelle Gerges discussing her monumental book, Sunburnt Country, The History and Future of Climate Change in Australia. And when you say the history of climate change in Australia, you're not messing around. This is covering a truly epic scope of both science and historical sources. 
In the book, you describe this process of assembling historical climate records as putting together a jigsaw. Um, and one of the fabulous things about the book is that it does draw from so many different sources. So there's newspapers, there's diaries, there's letters, there's kind of early climate records kept by botanists and scientists who happened to be in the first fleet, um, as well as the on the scientific side, digging through ice cores and tree rings and coral records. It's truly, it's a, it's a jigsaw of a lot of pieces. When you, when you started out, did you have an idea of where all these pieces were or was it a bit of a treasure hunt? Well, there was some component of the research which was a treasure hunt for sure. Some of the historical material, we didn't always know what we were going to find. We had historians and the libraries point us in the right direction and sometimes there was buried treasure which was fantastic when we came across that material. And I should add that I had two PhD students working with me, um, Lyndon Ashcroft who's at the Bureau of Meteorology now. She was working on the instrumental weather records and I had another student, Claire Fenby, who's a historian who did a fantastic job looking through a lot of the historical archives. And I guess from my own background I've done a lot of work working with um, natural archives so things like tree rings and corals and ice cores and so I actually did my PhD in that kind of area and so I was aware that we could actually use these types of records to extend our understanding of Australia's climate variability back in, in, into the past and that hadn't really been done in a major way until really in recent years. things that really jumped out at me reading this book, especially in the early stages where you're describing the colonists and the first fleet coming to Australia and how they're dealing with this crazy climate that's completely different to anything they've ever come across. It's a real narrative. There's this real kind of epic sweep of droughts and floods and all the rest of it. Was that, you know, a, a change for you? Did you feel like you were writing a narrative history? I, that was really the, the hope is that I would come up with a bit of a, a narrative, as you say, because I think what's been missing from the climate change discussion that we've been having more broadly is that we don't really have a national story about climate change. I think sometimes people can dismiss it as, oh, well, we're the land of drought and flooding rains and we've been through it all before. And so therefore, you know, there's nothing to worry about, nothing to see here, move on. But it's not quite, that's not quite the story. I think another thing that often gets lost on people is that Australia is actually considered the most vulnerable nation in the developed world when it comes to climate change. Now, Professor Ross Garneau came out and said this a decade ago, and somehow we don't seem to be listening, but we are really vulnerable for a range of different reasons. And one of those reasons is that we're a really arid continent. We sit in the subtropical um, desert belt of the world, so along with places like South Africa and, and parts of South America. So we're inherently already very dry. And so our relationship with water is quite precarious to begin with. And so that is, that's a real issue. And when we, we do have a lot of this temperature and rainfall variability. And so if we start warming Australian climate, then we, we're starting to see extremes that haven't played out, you know, in, in a really long while. And even if they have played out in the past, these are usually in times where human civilizations didn't exist. So it's not helpful when people say, oh, well, we've been through, uh, you know, ice ages before and things like that. Well, that that's not really an apples to apples comparison. At the, the height of the last ice age, probably about 5 million people 
around the whole planet. So it's a population of Sydney spread out along across the whole globe, which is is really not very much. And people were living in a very low tech society, but now we've got like 7.4 billion people on the planet and living in in modern industrialized cities and and, and lifestyles and all that sort of thing. And so it's not really. Uh, you know, a one to one comparison. And I think people need to understand there's a lot of human vulnerability now in the, in the actual, um, in the climate system as well. So that's one of the things that I think is, is really important. And so when it comes to climate change in Australia, we are the land of drought and flooding rains. Absolutely. No one can test that. But what we are concerned about is that we've actually warmed by a degree and seven tenths of that's actually happened since 1950. And so most of our warming is happening really rapidly. And so what that is doing is accelerating the rates of change, those natural background rates of change that we might expect. And what that does is actually amplify our climate variability. So I like to think of it as climate variability on steroids. And so everything just becomes a little bit more intense and extreme. And and really for a country that's already quite intense and extreme, we're talking about that's when we start seeing record-breaking conditions every other uh, season or year as we're seeing right now. I mean... It seems as um, every single month and every single year we are breaking records and it's just, uh, it, it fundamentally tells you that the climate system has shifted. Something that really jumped out at me again in the book is the story of, um, you tell the story of some hideous floods that decimated Brisbane over and over again during 1893 Mm. and there was a chap called Henry Somerset who owned a farm that was up the river and uphill from Brisbane and he would see the these tropical cyclones hit and these walls of water come rushing down the river towards uh, Brisbane which caused huge devastation and twice he sent a rider galloping down to warn them and twice they almost completely ignored him until eventually they set him up as an official flood warning station. Did you identify a bit with Henry Somerset? <laughs> That's a really nice passage from the book that I actually enjoyed um, writing because it was one of those things that I guess sometimes the climate science community can feel like we're coming out saying things that perhaps people don't want to hear. And it is a bit of a difficult position to be in because really what we are trying to do is keep people out of harm's way. So just like the writer that set out in the middle of the 1893 floods to tell people to, because the telegraph wasn't enough then to be able to transmit the message to let people know that a wall of water was coming their way and was going to inundate um, downtown Brisbane. And I, and I think as climate scientists, we can see, we're able to read all these different uh, symptoms, if you like, of, of the climate situation and be able to tell people that we really have a major situation on our hands and we really do need to act in terms of trying to reduce the more dangerous levels of climate change that we're going to experience. And I think it's really important to remember that this isn't out of our hands just yet. The science is crystal clear, our our climate is changing. But the good news is, and that's in the second half of the book, is that everything that we need to turn this around already exists. Now, I think for me, that was a really um, heartening part of the book to write because I realized that the solutions are all there. 
And I think as a scientist, I hadn't delved so much into that literature. But when I did, I realized that there's some very bright minds from the CSIRO and other university groups and think tanks from all over the world have really got behind this to, to figure out, can we actually solve this? And it turns out that we can, but we just need the political will. And this is the thing that I, I guess I find frustrating. There are a lot of people that really care about this. And I think um, it's just important to remember that we're not alone with this and that um, I do believe that wanting to safeguard the uh, future livability of the planet is not a fringe issue. I would argue that is a completely uh, you know, rational thing to want to do. And also for people that have children. I mean, what kind of future do we want to leave our little ones in terms of you know, diabolical future summers of 50 degrees in places like Melbourne and Sydney. I mean, we're talking about unsafe and dangerous levels of heat. We're talking about no Great Barrier Reef really in any recognisable form that anyone who's seen it previously would have um, would have experienced. And, and I think that that is a profound loss uh, for all of humanity to go through that when the solutions exist already. I want to thank you for writing a book that just really highlights that, all right, it's tough, but we've got some grit and we've got some determination. Do you think ultimately this is, was this a happy thing for you to do? I mean, you bet. I think, thank you for raising that because I think it does highlight the the inherent resilience of a lot of Australians. You know, we have an incredible history and there is a lot of ingenuity and mateship and all of that really amazing um those amazing qualities that I think we all really value as Australians, that we are capable of rising to this challenge. And you see it any time there is a natural disaster that plays out. I mean, the SES service is actually made up mostly of volunteers. People are willing to get out on the line and, and rescue their neighbours and help their communities. And I think this is what I, I really put a lot of hope in. I think we can do this. And I think it is the largest cultural revolution that's taking place on the planet right now. And the question is, do we want to get on board? I think we really do. Thank you so much for your time today, Joelle. And thank you for this fabulous book. It was an absolute pleasure to read it. And it's been a pleasure to chat with you today. Thank you so much. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is a podcast where we ask academics to shed light on the issues they know inside and out. Special thanks to Andrew Watkins and Joelle Gerges, as well as Jerwin de Guzman. Our theme beats are from Uncle Ho and Elephant Tracks, and we've used music in this episode from Pottington Bear and others from the Free Music Archive. You can read a full list of credits on our website, theconversation.com. Trust Me, I'm an Expert is out at the start of every month. Find us and subscribe at iTunes, Pocket Casts, or wherever you find your podcasts.